I'm Robbie McDonald. And I'm Jordan Lee. We're two writers who've been friends for 15 years. Recently, we both discovered we have the shared experience of figuring out we have ADHD in midlife. Holy Shit, I Have ADHD is a platform for adults discovering their neurodivergence, as well as a way to spread awareness of ADHD. This is a podcast about ADHD, hosted by two people with ADHD. While each episode has a general theme, our meandering trains of thought mean we often cover several other themes in the process. We are not experts, simply two people sharing their experiences of discovering their ADHD in midlife. If you suspect you or someone you know may have ADHD, speaking to a medical professional should be part of your discovery journey. Right, so you were saying um, there's an ADHD thing with the, the emails that take like 30 seconds to do, but like occupy anxious real estate oh, yeah. for two weeks? Absolutely. I've, I've got... And that's and that's the thing is that like that's that's more often than not the actual kinds of tasks that like bog down my mental function is just little things. It's never mm-hmm. actually uh, the, the 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 stuff that's actually hard. I know intellectually that it is actually hard, so I got to take care of it. So I do wind up getting into it sooner. It's just mm-hmm. like yeah, the the things that are are five or ten minutes, but like you know maybe they require um, some sort of risk on my part or or the chance mm. of me getting my feelings hurt or something like that anything that kind of ties into rsd those are yeah. the tasks that i end up putting off um mm. yeah but yeah i i feel like it's just the most like mundane things too like i was saying like with the co-op we participated in this energy cons- conservation program that bc hydro or something was doing and we had the opportunity to to qualify for free fridges for some of the units in the co-op which is amazing right Mm -hmm. like that saves so much money and energy and some of the fridges in this place are really old and all i had to do was sign a pdf and send it back two weeks that thing sat in my inbox and it wasn't until i realized that it said in bold letters must do this within 30 days that i was like oh my god if i don't do this people aren't going to get their fridges it's just like it's just such a sometimes I get so mad at myself about that because it's often about things that will benefit like the community that aren't even really about me and I just I can't prioritize it and then when I actually do it I'm like oh Christ that was so easy you know why didn't Mm -hmm. I just answer that email right away but instead I get into this kind of and I know I've been doing it lately because work is getting a bit busier and uh, there's a lot going on and so I'm like kind of being stubborn about other things like I don't have time for this I'm busy and important you know I'm kind of pulling that shit and I'm like oh that's so I don't know I've got a little bit of a toddler in me sometimes about that stuff you know like it is ADHD but it's also me kind of being a bit of a diva I think I I don't know um I I think I think we all get like that sometimes but maybe other people are just like better at, at at hiding it or managing it but I guess I guess I'm curious what um what the kinds of things are that are that are causing that for you right now um, well, I realized, um, over this weekend, you know, I've done a lot of work about, uh, that toxic place that I worked a couple years ago and I've had to really work through some stuff with it. And what I realized is that a big part of what made that so toxic for me was my own perception of how people viewed me mm. and how they did or didn't value me. And in a lot of cases they just didn't, but my reaction to that, rather than like you, you were saying, like some people could just mask it. I'm not able to hide my disdain for silly little make work projects or, you know, being asked to organize someone's outlook calendar 
Yeah. When I'm like supposed to be writing press releases. Like it was just, yeah. Um, I think I'm just coming to this place where I'm like, oh, even though this isn't something I necessarily want to do, if there, if it's just a small thing, then it's no big deal. But also if I'm in a weird hierarchy where I'm being kind of, oh, how do I explain it? I don't know. Maybe I'm not articulating this well, but I feel like something in me just released on the weekend where I was just like, mm. all that stuff is behind me now. I cut off all this extra hair that I've been carrying around and I'm just like... I want to feel lighter. I want to feel more delight. I want to be excited about the things I'm involved in. Um, we're starting a TikTok channel for the mm. center, and I'm actually getting excited about that instead of nice. feeling like, oh, God, it's another thing I have to do. You know, it's like, oh, this is actually kind of rad. Like, that that this, this we, and you and I maybe should have a conversation about this because, I mean, you know, there's billions of impressions on ADHD on TikTok because it's and some people are even calling it ADHD talk. Um, <laughs> of course, we'd have to handle it ethically, but like, it's just like, what's fun. And I, I want to get back to that again, like the things that feel alive and the things that feel exciting instead of, um, oh, it's just another fucking thing I got to do. And it just brings more energy to it. It brings a different uh, vibe. I hope I'm explaining myself properly, but I feel like something in me just kind of released, like, just like, I don't have to think that way. I don't have to worry about what folks I worked with for like a minute think of me. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm, I'm very, uh, I think often about like, um, yeah, you know, is there, do, do I want to get involved, uh, more on social media kind of stuff and like, and like, you know, uh, historically it's been a no. Um, mm -hmm. It's still kind of a no. And especially with everything being kind of a switch to video, like as, as I don't, it's not that I even mind being on camera or anything, but it's just, it's not content that I consume. And so mm -hmm. I, I find it really difficult to, to work up interest uh, in, in producing content that I can't relate to, to consuming, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like, I, it, that, that's the thing is that, is that like, what I like about this show is that we found a place where we can talk about this in a way that feels natural for us. And, and, yes. you know, um, as much as I, as I love all of our colleagues in the ADHD podcast space, I find a lot of that kind of content just kind of corny sometimes just because yeah. I just, I, I don't, I, I am, I am an ADHD person. There's no fucking getting around that, but mm -hmm. I just like. I don't know. I, I don't want to make that my whole personality, you know, and I just, I just Such don't, a good point. I don't know whether I want to, yeah, it just, it just doesn't appeal to me to watch or spend time producing, you know, like a, like a, a video sketch of like when you get in the kitchen and forgot why you got in there and it's me going like, Oh, and then like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and then the TikTok lady voice, like when you accidentally leave your keys in oh, the fridge or whatever. You know, what's, what I find really um, frustrating about that voice is that that was originally supposed to be um, for like, it was supposed to be an access point for uh, folks uh, with um, autism that were too fatigued to speak. And it's supposed to be like an automated thing where you can like type in and then that voice. And that's been completely appropriated by this whole TikTok thing and it made it really kind of twee and silly. But the fact is that's supposed to be an access thing. Like somebody that I was in a program with, like when she was too fatigued to talk, she would type it. And like she'd be in a dark space and, and that was access to her. But now it's become this thing where it's like a oh, fucking annoying TikTok thing. And it's like uh, everything becomes like, I don't know. 
Yeah. Well, see, I'm 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 going to push back on that a little bit. Um, mm. I personally think that whatever technology exists, um, it's it's kind of it's always going to be utilized. And I don't I don't think that just because it's inherently a um, a technology that facilitates accessibility means that you know it's appropriative for for able-bodied or minded or whatever language we want to use people to kind of use that stuff. It's like you know. Um, I, I don't know. I, I just don't think that that uh, like like let's say an escalator. Like, is it appropriate for us to use an escalator uh, because we're we're able bodied enough to use the stairs? It's something that makes that easier or or more efficient or whatever for everyone. It does mm-hmm. also allow access for people that can't that don't have the <clears throat> excuse me leg strength to walk the stairs or whatever. But mm-hmm. I, I don't think that that. Yeah, that, that it's that it's inherently appropriative uh, when it is something mm. that can kind of benefit everyone. So that's a good I, point. I totally get what you're saying, though, is that, you know, yeah. it, it, it what it kind of makes me think of is like um, there was I don't know if you ever were into like web comics in the kind of early to mid 2000s. Mm, a um, little bit. It was very common practice in that uh, to use the mouse over uh, alt text function to basically add another joke. Uh, so you'd have like your your three panel comic or whatever, and then uh, you'd you'd highlight over the picture, and the mouse mm. up text would give like a you know a little wry meta commentary on that strip or something like that. But that I think is an example of taking accessibility and appropriating or misusing it because that's mm. what that alt text is there for is to so you so you can mouse over it uh, well not mess over it I'm not really sure how blind uh, accessibility works but in any event mm. that text is supposed to tie into that picture of a of a, a chrysanthemum mm-hmm. and say this is a picture of a chrysanthemum in a blue vase um yeah and so when and you, it's a screen reader like the screen yes. and the screen readers get confused if you put a, a shit ton of hashtags and emojis and stuff yeah. like that's the worst yeah. and and in this case it's it's not it, it's just outright removing the accessibility for the sake of adding another joke and i don't think mm-hmm. that that was the intended spirit in which we, in, in which you know, the comic creators were doing that stuff. Huh, right. But I think it's just a function of of people, myself very much included, were just not thinking about accessibility at the time. Or pardon me, you know what? People who didn't have the need for it were not thinking about accessibility on the web to the degree that it is now. Like it's not, it wasn't not something that was talked about. So yeah, um, I just I see that Hart is here, and I wanted to let you finish your thought because it's a juicy one. Appreciate that. Hi, I'm Robbie McDonald, and welcome to Holy Shit, I Have ADHD, and this is... I'm Jordan Lane. (laughs) And this is Hart Kaplan, and we are so excited to have Hart Kaplan on the show today. Hart is the co-founder and director of Nightingale Counseling and Research, and they've been doing some amazing work um, for folks with ADHD. He has a lot of letters behind his name, and it's almost like an intimidating academic background. Uh, he also discovered that he has ADHD just recently, within the last year and a half. Is that right, Hart? Yep. Right. Okay. So um, he practices existential psychotherapy, which I find to be a really fascinating new, uh, not new, but new to me way of um, working with folks with ADHD. And has some amazing ideas. So I'm going to let you unpack all those as we get into the conversation. But I think we'll just start with you introducing yourself and maybe start with why it is you use lowercase on your name 
And then we'll get into uh, your ADHD discovery story from there. So welcome, Hart. Well, thank you very much for having me. So it, it's funny that you bring up the, the, the lowercase thing because I just had a discussion with, with one of my colleagues here asking me the same thing. And uh, honestly, it started in uh, 20-something years ago. It was... I don't know. It was just kind of a like a like a weird pissy thing to do, kind of. And it does fit into the ADHD thing because to me it's like a kind of low stakes oppositionalism and it also sort of fits in with uh, a kind of a particular orientation towards like efficiency and waste. I'm a very poor typist. I, I never, I never became a, a proper typist. And so for me, like I, I almost write exclusively in, in lowercase. And even many years ago, wrote uh, like a dumb essay called something like uh, "In Praise of of the Lowercase." And um, but really, it was just a result of me trying to save even a couple keystrokes along the way. And, you know, at the time, I just thought I was, you know, whatever, being whatever kind of guy I was. But but ultimately, you know, this we're already into the ADHD thing here. But I find that people with ADHD have a very particular relationship to efficiency and waste. Mm. And, and so for me, it was like a kind of a low stakes way of, of saving resources. Oh, boy. That's really interesting. I'm kind of curious about about that. What what is can you can you articulate your uh, belief about ADHD people and their thoughts on waste? Well, it, it just sort of started bubbling up in in these. You know, I uh, started having more and more clients. You know, of course, I knew my my own experience. And I just found that that the people with ADHD, with ASD as well, all kind of people in the in the neurodiversity camp um, or population, I just found them, and myself included. When I say them, it's always going to include me. Sure. Um, having like a very um, like kind of rigid feelings about things like justice, about waste, mm-hmm. and being quite dogmatic about things. And so I just I just found it was like one of these features that kept on showing up again and again, and and not always in in the exact same way. So like uh, because people are situated in their own lives in their own particular way, so efficiency and waste may take on may kind of manifest in in um, in individual ways. And yet I find it is something that is that I notice across. All, all my clients in in b- b- very different ways. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting because I, I noticed some of that behavior in myself, but in in kind of a funny way. So I find that I am I am very kind of concerned about about wastefulness when it comes to materials and and you know hard goods. But uh, I I really don't. It, it, the efficiency doesn't factor in at all with my time. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> like I, so here, here's a, here's a weird behavior. I will just like save my drive through fast food bags, <clears throat> excuse me, to use as compost bags. Cause you know, like why would I go spend money on more paper bags and then like throw out all these paper bags? And is that weird? And maybe not like the most efficient use of my time probably, you know, but again, it's, it is, it, 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 there is like a real uh, reduction in waste, both in terms of me wasting my money and wasted resources by by making that choice as kind of unusual as it is. 
see, it's interesting because I'm the I'm the opposite of what like the flip of what Jordan is describing is that I don't think that much about things like that, but I cannot stand being inefficient with my time, especially um, when I know there's a lot to do. And even my partner will be like, "Little Miss Efficiency is at it again," and I'll be like, "Oh, we're wasting time," you know. So uh, to continue your thought, hard, I didn't mean to speak over you there. No, no, I, I think this is so interesting, right? And, um, and and again, time is is something that we can we can spend more time on. And in fact, I was really pleased to hear you guys a couple podcasts ago talk about the work of this. Um, I, I'm not sure if she's Danish or Swedish. This woman named Micah Nielsen, who who wrote that book on rhythm analysis. Mm. Um, so I, I, I think her work is is super interesting, um, and. You know, time is just fundamental, I think, to the ways in which people with ADHD experience the world. I would say some people, maybe Robbie and I are the same around this, where there's like such rigidity and such like attention to time. And then there's other folks with ADHD who would, you know, I would use sort of the district descriptive language of like disorganized or, you know, people who fall down time holes and, and these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And as with everything ADHD, <clears throat> pardon me, we're, we're always uh, on, on one pole or the other, right? Like mm -hmm. you'll never find someone who's like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good with time. Like I, I do my best mm -hmm. for the most part, but when I'm late, like I'm super cool about <laughs> it. And right. Like there's, you know, I'm a kind of person who like the idea of being late is like, seems to me like a profound moral failing. Hmm. And so I organized so much of my life around, you know, like I, I, I had to meet my partner at one point at Ikea a while back. We were doing some shopping for the, for the new office. And he described me as uh, uh, aggressively early, right? Like I was there like <laughs> half an hour earlier or something idiotic. And, um, and so I, th I think it's interesting, you know, Jordan, that you notice, like in particular domains, this, this feeling of efficiency and waste is like really profound. And in other domains, you're just not oriented in the same way and, and allow things to sort of come and go with, well, I was going to say more ease, but maybe with just less attention or, or something along those lines. Well, yeah, it's it's interesting, though, because I definitely feel the same way about lateness. I'm habitually like 10 minutes early, at least to everything. But where I where I don't feel like I, I guess I don't I don't it's not that I don't value my time, but I don't think of like it being wasted by not a like if, if I could accomplish something in a half an hour and it takes 45 because I'm just kind of doing it my way. I don't feel that that doesn't cause me to stress, uh, but I would never, uh, uh, God forbid if I inconvenience someone else by five minutes, making them wait for me at the Ikea. <laughs> but, but as well, right? Like classically ADHD that I see time and again, <clears throat> when it's with ourselves, we're like, ah, fuck it. You know, like we'll figure it out. And when it's with somebody else, we're like, I wouldn't dream of wasting another person's, uh, uh no. and, and I think in part, Part, that's the ways and uh, speaks to the way in which we we value ourselves vis-a-vis uh, -vis others and and people with ADHD just tend to kind of put themselves to the side and are incredibly attentive to others. Mm -hmm. I, I have this client that I that I'm thinking of who who 
is incredibly hard on himself, as I think the vast majority <laughs> of us are. And yet he told me that like a, a, a partner of his years ago referred to him as uncommonly kind. Mm. Right? And, and, and that is the kind of divide that I, I regularly see in, in my ADHD clients and even myself, right? I think maybe we all have the experience of being out in the world and being very attentive to others and like really caring about other people's time. And then we come home and then we are bad to ourselves and we are bad to our partners and we are not very kind to our children. And then they look at us and they're like, well, I don't get it. You know, like I see you in the outside world. You're such a, like a, like a kind person. You come home and you're, you're, you're grumpy as shit. So, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, make that work for me. And again, like it's, it's, it's about the ways that we inhabit the different domains in our own lives. That's mm, such a good point about the being grumpy as shit. You know, my long suffering partner, he's like 9 PM hits. That's it. Don't ask Robbie any more questions because she's just going <laughs> to yeah. get pissy. Um, he calls it cranky hour. He's got a few different nicknames <laughs> for it. But um, this does kind of bring us back to your own discovery journey because I know a little bit about that. But I wonder if you could talk some more about how that all happened for you in the last two years during the pandemic even. Yeah, I mean, it is a pretty kind of wild or weird story because, um, you know, the sort of the backstory is that, you know, as you notice, I, I have been in a school for, you know, much of my adult life. Um, I think largely to forestall, you know, like making any decisions about finding jobs and, you know, being in a place and, and these sorts of things. So for you know, for my adult years, you know, even teenage years, you know, 30 something years, like I suffered with a lot of, a lot of fatigue, a lot of, you know, emotional ups and downs, some, some real difficulties, like really like terrible, like just crushing insomnia at, at certain times in my life. And, you know, I was working at, at UBC as, um, as an administrative person, I had been, you know, I had really wanted to be an academic and, and I would say largely as a result of undiagnosed ADHD, I was not able to um, finish a doctoral program that I was, uh, uh, I had been admitted to in the early 2000s. So I had um, put that aside and I was working at UBC as an administrative person and then sort of, sort of in my mid 40s, I decided like... Um, I am going to molder in this office, right? Like mm -hmm. I am going to die in this fucking place if I don't do something. And so there is a longer story, but ultimately I decide to, to go back to school. I, I kind of figure it's going to be my, kind of my last shot, right? Like maybe I was 46 or 47 at the time. And I thought like, if you don't, if you don't do something now, like you, you're just going to be, you know, they, they refer to UBC as the golden handcuffs, mm -hmm. right? Like people go there and then they, they sort of never escape. And so I decided I was going to sort of take the leap of faith or leap into faith and, and, and try my hand at counseling, not knowing if I would be any good at it or if I would like it or how it all, if I'd be able to make any money at it. Anyways, I, I sort of, um, I, I, I start down that road. Uh, I, I like it. Uh, I, th I think I'm good at it. I'm like working, working, working. I become, uh, you know, I get certified, all that kind of stuff. In the meantime, uh, you know, I, I start a relationship with this woman. 
she and I uh, blend our families. And, um, you know, a, a number of years ago, she and her son at the same time, in the very sort of classic way, get diagnosed with ADHD at the same time. Now, she, she and I are very different people. And so we used to kind of joke in the house as, you know, so I learned a lot about ADHD by spending time with them, by, um, you know, being attentive to what was going on with their treatment and medication and um, and, and, you know, Abby, my partner used to joke with me like that I was the anti ADHD person mm -hmm. because she sort of fits more like that classic, um, more disorganized around time, you know, kind of, um, understanding that we have of ADHD and I was very different, right? Like I was incredibly attuned to time. I could, I, I kind of joke that I could always tell you sort of irrespective of having a watch or a computer or anything, I always know what time it is, sort of plus or minus, one, like one or two minutes all the time. And that's just always how I've been, right? Like just so focused, attentive, right, to, to this thing, even when I didn't want to be, right? Like it was sort of, I always found it like a little bit burdensome. Anyway, so I go to school, get my degree, start practicing, start seeing people, I start seeing like people just off the street, like coming in with depression and anxiety. We start talking more about like, oh, is this actually ADHD? I start getting like a lot of experience noticing um, the kind of less obvious habits around ADHD. I start expanding my own understanding, working with a lot of people. And then I think it was almost a year exactly, uh, last year, this exact time, I was really struggling as I often am with, with fatigue, right? Like I, I've been, I've been dragging my ass around for like a lot of decades <laughs> and just feeling, you know, and I've done like every goddamn thing that a person could do, like every diet and every supplement and every breathing technique and every every goddamn thing. And so on this day, I was just, I was just exhausted. And, um, I don't know why, but I just said, I kind of just said, fuck it. And I went to the cupboard and, uh, I, I took some of Abby's medication. Um, she was taking Folquest at the time. And so, uh, I, I threw one of those guys down I think at like 55 milligrams or something. <clears throat> and then at the end of the day, I said, uh, I said to Abby, like, come sit on the couch with me. I have something to tell you. And she's like, okay. And I said, uh, I, you know, it, it struck me in that moment. I, I had the best day that I had had in, <laughs> in like a thousand years, right? Like I, I felt like I had the resources to do the things that I wanted to do. I felt calm, right? Like I'm not the most hyperactive guy. Like, like I'm not always walking around but my fingers are constantly tapping. My toes are constantly tapping. There's uh, my jaw. I have a lot of, um, had a lot of jaw pain from, from years and years of bruxism. And so even during the day, like my jaw would be clenching, my teeth would hurt. And I, I got through to the end of the day on this medication. And I was like, uh, uh, it's not like I was cured because mm. there's lots of the structural things that, that still remain and the whole history of being a person who's grown up from 50, 50 something years with this. But 
it became the most obvious thing in the world that all the ketogenic diets and all the supplements and all the everything else, right? It was sort of for naught because what really explained what was going on for me was, was ADHD. Wow. There's uh, that's so interesting. And there's a couple of specific things I wanted to, to relate to, I guess, a little bit in there. Um, I actually just talked about this, I think maybe one or two episodes ago about the time prediction thing. Cause same thing. I was, I was, you know, mm-hmm. in a dark room for doing uh, 10 hour days on a film thing back in November. And I still knew within, you know, a couple minutes, what time it was, if someone asked me, you know, I, I can't even see the sun moving around and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, yeah, like talking about the bruxism and jaw pain thing is very funny. Cause you had talked about like tapping and, and stuff before that. And that of course, like, so I'm a drummer and that was something that like, I guess maybe that's a way I found to, to direct that energy into that. But then I have somehow managed to combine the two because I find myself drumming with my teeth all the time and just like mm. tapping out rhythms and stuff by just clacking my jaw together like a little plastic skeleton. And yeah, like I know that that is going to, no pun intended, bite me in the ass one of these days because um, it, it just it just straight up can't be good for me. But it's it's such an unusually specific behavior that I just wanted to uh, uh, say me too on that one. So. <laughs> Well, yeah, my teeth, um, yeah, the bruxism and it wasn't even, that wasn't even properly caught because I had this, you know, not just the the cost of going to the dentist, but the fear of the dentist and the dentist is like so awful. Um, and I have a mouth guard now, thank goodness. Um, because I would like, I remember at one point, cause I don't hear myself sleeping. My partner was like, what is that noise? And it was literally me like gnashing so hard oh my on my God. teeth in my sleep that it was like. It sounded awful. And I would wake up with this kind of dusty taste in the morning because I was literally grinding the enamel down. It's just like not good. Like the the anxiety uh, dreams that were probably accompanying that were not that fun. Um, but yeah, like all the little, um, little things we do to kind of stimulate ourselves and uh, the difficulty that I have for sitting still for any length of time drives my partner around the bend, right? It's like we're sitting on the couch and I'm like, plant use water, got to do this, got to do that. But I can pay more attention when I'm in movement than I can if I'm being forced to sit still. Like that's why school was so hard for me with being, you know, hand in front of you in the desk in the 70s, right? Um, because my brain was like needed to like, I needed to calm my brain by moving. And I think you had some interesting thoughts on that heart too, about like when you're, when you set yourself up for a little bit of motion, um, then things are become a little more, there's a little bit of a flow that comes into your day rather than kind of, you know, okay, it's 9 a.m. Monday, I got to sit down and hammer out a bunch of shit. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about your ideas around movement, because I think they're really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll just go back and, and say to Jordan, like, I, I'm also a drummer. Mm. So I, I'm just like constantly doing like paradiddles all absolutely. day on, on my fingers and, and, and with my teeth as well. And, and, and Robbie, I'll uh, definitely uh, uh, get to your question because it's critical, but 
I find like this doesn't show up in any of the literature, but there is this category of of experience that people with ADHD have that I've given a, a, like a little bit of a weird name, which I just call mouth stuff. <laughs> and what I notice is that there's a lot of hyperfunction in the face of people with ADHD. It typically shows up in 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 the mouth, right? So what do we see? We see bruxism, both grinding and clenching, that tapping thing. I, I've done that for 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 decades. Um, there's um, biting nails, right? Oh, Which is yeah. a, a thing that a lot of people do. Chewing of the inside of cheeks. And then there's all the things that, that have to do with food as well, right? Like we think of food, you know, from, from the kind of nutritional standpoint and caloric and all this kind of stuff. But I think about it in terms of like what your face is forced to do to, to get food in. And so I think some of the, the, the people's difficult relationship with food it may be like largely tied to like the need to to be chewing and 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 so there's there's this whole category of 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 hyperfunction of the face that I think is I, I don't know why but doesn't show up but I just think it's sort of an interesting finding um, for sure and actually before you get into your next thing if I can just dovetail onto that for a sec um, it when people so I, I another thing that I do is is chew ice uh, as a way again mm-hmm. to kind of keep my face busy and that's something that when people hear that they're like. Oh, it must be like a mineral deficiency or pica or anything. But I would I would posit that uh, uh, ADHD people are likelier to be ice chewers uh, apart from any other kind of like medical thing. As yeah, as as a, a function of keeping your face busy. That's a really interesting way to think about it. So. Mm-hmm. A lot of gum chewing, yeah. a lot of just like constant kind of, you know, and, 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 you know, this is a kind of a subset of hyperactivity, right? And I'm interested, I haven't got into the more, um, the physiology literature about like, if there's a, if we know something about that hyperfunction of the face, but I think it is extremely common. I, I, I say to all my ADHD clients, like get a mouth guard because likely there's stuff going on in your sleep that you are not attentive to. And, uh, like Robbie, you know, I've, I've had some difficult experiences at the dentist and, and I know it's, it's no one's friend, but there is a lot of preventative work that we can do to keep our, our teeth and our faces as, as healthy as possible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Back to the sort of the, the, the movement question. I, I think it's, it's super critical. I mean, to me, so much of ADHD, both metaphorically, but actually like just bodily, like mm-hmm. movement is is such an important topic. And there's this woman named Barbara Tversky, um, who is the partner of, uh, I think, a Nobel Prize winning economist, a guy named, no, Daniel Kahneman and can't remember what what the what her partner's name is, but she wrote a book. Uh, I think in 2019. I think that the title is called Minds in Motion. Mm. And her basic premise, um, and I will, I will start by saying, like in good ADHD fashion, like I have butt skimmed this book, so I have not like gotten into the the guts of it. But that's <laughs> not going to stop me from talking about it in this moment. <laughs> The, the, the sort of basic premise of her book is that um, that motion, that movement, is itself a context for thinking, mm. right? which, which is exactly like the sort of the diametric opposite of what we think of as, you know, how to be productive. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is a thing that I see so many of my ADHD clients getting into like a, a sort of a, a war with themselves or a kind of tension because what when we think of what, what does it mean to be like a good worker? Well, I... Uh, you know, I sit down at my desk 
and I sit down from nine to 12 and then I get up for one hour and then I go back and I sit down for another four hours. But, but that is just not, I mean, my guess is that's not good for anybody. And it sort of speaks to the, uh, you know, the, the sort of the ill structured way that our schools are, 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 are put together, mm-hmm. but particularly for people with ADHD, particularly for kids with ADHD, the idea of being jammed into a space with no capacity for movement is, is to say, is not only to say, don't move, but is also to say like, don't think, mm-hmm. feel constrained, you know? And, and so. So I think Robbie's point is a really important one that like actually giving yourself time to move around is giving yourself time, uh, putting yourself into a context where you're able to think and to feel and to experience your own body in a way that might feel like radically different than being told to sit down at a desk and to to perform, to, to sit quietly, vocally and, and bodily, and then to you know, to, to focus all your attention at the screen in front of you. I think it's, it, it's just like such a difficult task for, for people with ADHD. Oh, I can so relate to that. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, like the, the, in the early days of the pandemic, when I, you know, the job that I was in, and we would be on Zoom calls, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. some days with like a couple of bio breaks sprinkled in there, everybody eating at their desk, staring into these screens. And I felt like my brain was going to like seep out the side of my ears and my legs would atrophy and I had like cramps all over my body. I was so exhausted because I don't think people should work that much anyway. But because I wasn't able to move my body, I was like hunched over and just like, you know, like a goblin at this keyboard. And it, it just like, it was so hard to come up with creative ideas. It was so hard to, to just feel in my body. Yeah. And I, I would do all these little stimming things like tapping my shoulders and stuff to try to keep myself in the moment. But yeah, you're right. It, it, it is so important um, that you, as human beings, we've kind of like sort of adhered to these colonial constructs that are all about rigidity and stillness. And like, you know, the person at the front of the room is the is, has all the knowledge and all the power and you have to sit and adhere and obey for lack of a better word. Um, and for ADHD folks like me, like that's just like hell on earth. I just like resentments just like swirl because it's like, A, you're making me sit when I don't want to B, you're telling me shit that I think inherently I know is fucked up and wrong. <laughs> you know? And, and yeah, I think just A and B, I don't think I want to go much further with that, but yeah, I just think it's such a cool idea hard to talk more about the movement and especially, um, like why, why kids are, you know, showing up and adults too kind of bouncing off the walls because they're not allowed to release that energy and not every kid responds to sports. Not everybody wants to like play basketball to like get their energy out or go running. There's other ways, right? Like maybe it's just walking or maybe it's yoga. Maybe it's just like dancing. Like no one's watching. I Did I just say that? Oh, my God. <laughs> I can't believe I just said that. Anyway. Jordan, were you going to chime in there? I didn't mean to cut well, you Well, I actually wanted to double back to something else uh, that Hart brought up a little while ago. Um, so you were saying that, um, uh, you know, you've started to kind of see these, uh, you, you're starting to, as you spend more time around ADHD people, you started to notice these kind of, to you, obvious kind of outward uh, signs mm-hmm. that like, hey, this might, this person might have ADHD. Um, and I'm just kind of curious because like I, so I got together with a friend last week and, and they told me that they had recently been diagnosed and 
And that was someone that I did have very strong suspicions about in my head. Um, and so for me, kind of those those big obvious signs are like uh, that 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 hyper verbality, kind of the way that I am. Um, the tapping thing, like just kind of just kind of needing to occupy your hands doing something, um, and then wondering if everybody is mad at you all the time <laughs> is like the other big one for me. And so I'm just kind of curious what what the big trigger or flags that you've noticed are. Yeah. So <clears throat> the, 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 yes, all, all the things that, that you point to are, are all good indicators. And yet I also know people, the, the mad about you thing that that'll put to the side because sure. that is pre, that is universal, right? Like that, <laughs> that, and that's, that's an important thing to, to, to pick up on. But, but this is part of the, the difficulty with the, like the diagnostic criteria that you find in the DSM or that, or that, you know, that we all think that we know, right? We have this sort of classic view of an 11 year old boy with ADHD who's like talking constantly, has his hand up. I was a teacher for a little while uh, back in the mid 90s and, when I was doing my practicum, there was a kid in my class. I mean, I, I didn't know, I was going to say, I didn't know shit about ADHD. I, I didn't really know shit about anything at that time <laughs> and, 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 and potentially still don't. But, but I just remember this kid, like you, any question by me or any, like he always had his hand up, right? Like it was just, I, I still remember his name, Morgan. And Morgan would have his hand up like 50 times a class, right? Like, so, so we think of this kid, right? Like, like constantly speaking, you know, uh, in, interrupting people constantly in motion. And the part of the difficulty is there's this whole, and, and <clears throat> this is another one of my um, uh, things that I, I'm frustrated with, is, is actually the name of the condition itself. Sure. I often say to people, like, attention and hyperactivity are sort of the two, well, two of the least interesting parts of, of ADHD, and yet it's right in the goddamn name. And there's, like, a, a large proportion of people who struggle with hyperactivity, physical hyperactivity, not at all. And, and, and this is, you know, my contention why I think that, that women are, are picked up at a far, far lower rate than men. So you see things like in the literature, in the epidemiological literature, oh, you know, uh, boys and men are at least two times more likely to have ADHD than women. But then you look at the, you know, sort of epidemiology around things like um, borderline personality disorder. And what do you find? Women are about twice as likely to, to be diagnosed with this as men. I think that there's like, there's all kinds of overlap in this stuff. And, and because we live in this particularly gendered kind of society, right, like women get called certain things and get classified in certain ways. And, and so... Uh, so to get back to your, you know, the, the around the tapping or around the the kind of hyperfunction, I, I have so many women clients, like adult women, who were always like the quietest, who were always like the best behaved, who were always like the most bookish, right? Like I, I have all these clients who were like incredibly good at school, and because again, it's part of this classic construction of what it means to have ADHD, we, we think that it's associated with poor school performance. And for some it is. And for others, the way that their ADHD manifests is to make them so oriented to like the desires of the teacher or the, the desires of their parents that they are the like the most meek and quiet and best behaved and 
And, and right, like I was just talking to a, a young woman recently who said, you know, like if she brought a 90 home, that was a failure, right? Like that was, I, I missed out on 10%. Like, how did I fuck this up? And so that kind of constant drive, you know, like striving perf- to, for perfection and perfectionism is another thing that I, I'm super interested in with ADHD. So, so again, right, like we see like these real polar opposite in presentations and, and, and more of like the masculine hyperactive, um, um, presentation is the one that we're more comfortable with and and the and the quiet withdrawn sort of presentation is is one that we we barely even recognize even even still speaking as a woman who yeah um a lot of that uh it was true for me in my experience and there was a like a high degree of kind of masking and trying to adhere to the norms that i perceived and was watching and so i would try to be like how, you know, my mom or whoever had said that this is how young women behave, but even though that wasn't true to my nature, but then sometimes it would come out and then I would get, like, depending on the environment, then I would get really excited and would be the kid with the hand up all the time. But the second a teacher admonished me, I was shut down for the rest of the year. I would become the quiet kid. And either I would do really poorly in that class or I would show them by, like, going to fucking town right and like but it's so interesting that for women like that it's it has been that way and like these these messed up gender narratives that we're kind of saddled with like and you know that's all kind of being unpacked in a lot of ways now which I think is so interesting and I think that's why there's these kind of flawed statistics about ADHD and like and all the studies of course you know have been done on men (laughs) as it is in the medical community and but yeah i just think that's such an interesting point about um how how it shows up for women and how it shows up for men and how our hormones influence all that Uh, and jordan did you what did you want to chime in there well it was just so this is something that i actually brought up on uh, another show that i was on a while ago um it's it's sort of you, you hear uh in life that the patriarchy is something that hurts men too but often you know it, it's mm-hmm. hard to come up with an example of how because of course we do benefit from it in many ways as, as men but that's a pretty a pretty perfect example of like you know because uh people's understanding of the adhd uh, decades earlier was oriented around that sort of of hyper movement and and you know uh the, the male kind of presentation a lot of women got overlooked but a lot of men like Hart and I also got overlooked because we didn't present in what was considered the the typical way for the time um so yeah I just I just thought that that was uh, an interesting uh note to make amazing Jordan yeah thanks for that sorry I, I, I keep having to mute myself because there's somebody roaring up and down our front <laughs> street I don't want anyone to have to hear that uh, were we gonna ask there Jordan well, I was just going to say, um, so Hart, you brought up uh, uh, perfectionism um, uh, earlier and, and sort of it's that's something that I've really kind of had to reevaluate my relationship with in the last whatever, I could say about five years, um, because, you know, that that is a huge part of my experience with everything um, is is not wanting to to uh put something out in the world, so to speak, unless it is absolutely perfect. But that's also it, it it has been hampering my creativity for a long time. And I feel like it's also ultimately for me, at least I'm not speaking for everyone else, but kind of as you were talking about, about going to school over and over again as a way to kind of like delay having to, to commit to something and say like, this is me, this is a thing that I believe in that's good or whatever. Um, and yeah, I'm just kind of curious to hear some of your thoughts on, on perfectionism. So, 
<clears throat> I've been thinking a lot about this lately um, because I, for me, perfectionism is another kind of manifestation of a, of a kind of rigidity of thinking, right? So I, I, I use the, I think a lot through this idea of, of heuristics. A heuristic is just a kind of, uh, a, kind of a, a, a very quick, gross, like assessment technique that we use all the time. And I think the way, you know, again, you know, like everyone with ADHD sort of has the experience of black and white, all or nothing, zero or 100, right? Like, and, and so we lack this kind of what I think of as like the intermediary spaces. So when you think, so I, I, I refer to perfectionism as um, the brittle heuristic, right? It's, it's, it's very brittle because it really, it's, it's, it's digital, right? Like we only have, the lights only on or off. So as we look out into the world and we bring this brittle heuristic to bear, right? So we look at it and we either see like absolute dog shit or perfection. <laughs> mm -hmm. And given those two choices, like what are you going to do? Like there's only one to choose. So now we have perfection as, as, as the goal, right? The only thing that will suffice as, um, as success. And of course, what does that do? That just puts us in harm's way time and again, because um, a perfection is, you know, uh, very difficult to, to, to get to, particularly in, in the, in creative realms, right? We can always look at, ah, you know, this wasn't quite right. The process wasn't quite, ah, I don't, you know, there's always a thing that we can chide ourselves about. And, 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 and this is the problem with perfectionism as, it, as a target. Target, right? Like if you think about yourself as an archer or uh, some sort, you know, let, let's say archer, not that I have any experience with archery, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's kind of dramatic, right? If, if the only thing that counts, if you're, you know, if you're looking into the distance and, and you, and there's a bullseye, right? And the, and the bullseye is about as big as a quarter. And the only thing that counts as success is when you hit that thing precisely in the middle, right? Like the, 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 the odds that we're going to do that, even for people who are like really well calibrated and excellent and, you know, is, is going to be pretty rare. And so if that's the case, right, like then we just, we're, we're, we're setting the conditions for, for failure for ourselves each and every time. And I, I, you know, the, that's the same around like the, the lateness, right? Like to be a minute late would be, you know, to me would be like, oh God, Jesus Christ, like what, what the fuck am I doing with my life, right? Like it would cause like such a self, you know, like self uh, uh, criticism and wondering like, you know, like uh, you, you, it takes you all the way back to a, to a, a difficult time. And, and, and so that is, that is one of the places where I think it's really important to have some descriptive language because um, there's this little, little sort of psychoanalytic aside, but there's this guy in the mid 20th century called, um, oh, oh good. It's just escaped me uh, <laughs> uh, completely. It, it'll come back to me. This British psychoanalyst who his sort of best known work is around like the good enough mother. This was in the fifties. Mm. So, you know, the idea of good enough parenting was, um, 
Robbie, do you have it at the tip of your tongue? Not at the tip of my tongue, but I know what you're talking about because it's, it's yeah. It's uh, Donald Winnicott. I've been Googling the back. Winnicott, yeah. D.W. Winnicott, yes. So so he writes this thing. I think it's from 53 or 56, and, and he writes about good enoughness. Mm-hmm. And so his analysis is the following, right? Like bad parenting, we know what bad parenting is, right? Bad parenting is bad for kids. But perfect parenting is also bad for kids mm. because you never give your children an opportunity to be disappointed or to struggle or to stub their toe or whatever. So- This is true for parenting, and I think it's true sort of more globally. When we're able to allow for good enoughness to actually be an appropriate thing, an appropriate target, Mm -hmm. then it kind of enlarges the, the bullseye that we're trying to hit, and it gives us a much greater opportunity to... To, to be successful, to feel successful, to, to interact with people in a, a kind of a, an easier way. So, so that, that, that sort of sense of good enoughness, I think, is like a really important thing from, from a therapeutic standpoint, um, but also just like a, a kind of day-to-day. Yeah, and that, that acceptance, because um, something I often talk about on the podcast, is a, is a lifelong feeling of insufficiency, Right. Um, and so many unmet goals and not hitting that bullseye, you know, just hit a little bit to the right of it or way, way, way out on the rings. Um, but yeah, that, that acceptance of like this thing that I'm doing, it, there's, I'm definitely enough to be doing this, and, but it doesn't always feel that way. Um, and yeah, Jordan, maybe you have some thoughts on that too, because that shifting that a little bit for me, like is so important. Like when I do the dishes, um, which isn't often because my partner usually does them, but um, when I do the dishes and if there's still just, you know, maybe a couple like little, little things on the frying pan, no big deal, right? That's not a moral failing on my part. It doesn't mean I can never wash a pan again. It just means that I, I don't pay as much attention to that specific detail as he does. And that's why he gets settled with doing the dishes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I've I've talked before on on our show about how yeah a big part for me of of getting out of that perfectionism, especially with uh, creative work, was getting back into into improv, which I had done in mm. high school and then took like a fifteen minute or fifteen minute fifteen year part of me break <laughs> from. Um, uh, but yeah, like like you know getting getting that going again has really helped because you don't know what you're doing till you get up there, and uh, you know there's nothing that you can do about it once it's done. Like there. There is no way to go back and and edit that scene and say, oh, geez, I should have said something different there. And you can kind of take what you learn and go forward. But there you will never find perfection in that that form. And I think that that taking that kind of idea has really helped me get um, more uh, comfortable with putting things out, doing mm-hmm. doing a podcast, doing uh, you know more music, more writing, all that kind of stuff. Um, I've done so much more of since I since I really kind of made a conscious effort to let go of that idea of perfectionism, um, and that's also helped me try new things that I wouldn't have dared to um, if I had thought. If, if I had come into it with the expectation that like, if I'm not perfect at this out of the gate, I, this, that, that's awful. And that's the worst thing that could happen. Like mm. I, I did a little bit of, um, uh, contemporary dance a few years ago, again, just as a way to kind of connect with my body more. And that's, you know, not something that I would have been comfortable doing without being able to let go of the idea of like, yeah, you might look like an asshole and people might make fun of you, uh, to their friends after class ends or whatever. But like, really there's no, there's no action 
actual consequences for failure in that environment. And I guess just kind of taking the idea of like, what really are the consequences for quote unquote failure and, and just, yeah, making sure I'm asking myself that question because more often mm-hmm. than not there, uh, there are barely consequences at all. <laughs> well, and, and I think the improv thing is like, uh, such a, a, a useful way of thinking about this more generally, because w- what that suggests is right. Like I- improv, like there are no in a sense, there are no goals in improv, right? Improv is completely um, process-oriented, right? You show up in a particular way, and then uh, uh, also the responsibility for the sort of the the goodness of the scene is distributed Mm -hmm. amongst everybody. In a way, what, what you're demonstrating is that there is kind of a way in which you can strive for perfectionism, but that perfectionism is not like is not performance or goal oriented. You can, in a way, you can enter into any scene as open-hearted and open-minded and available to the maximum extent that is is available for you. And you know, presumably there's some days where you're more open, more collaborative than others, but you can enter Right. So, but there is a way when you have that process orientation that you don't have to get bogged down. Like all of a sudden you have different benchmarks for what success and failure look like. Mm -hmm. And so it's not predicated simply on like a particular product at the end or a very specific outcome, but it's to say like, I can enter into this in, 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 uh, as open a way as, as possible. And when you do that and when you reflect back on it, you can actually see that, right? And then you can you can sort of have that experience of, of doing as your, your absolute best that is not tied to like a very particular kind of outcome. Mm-hmm. And I think that that kind of orientation really suits people with well, probably everybody, <laughs> mm-hmm. but particularly people with ADHD like really well. Mm-hmm. And yes, and, right? Like that's what I love about about um, improv is yes and is, is you know you don't block people you don't block other folks ideas like there's this fluidity and for folks with ADHD who have been blocked so many times in their life it's almost like a revelation to be in an environment where people are supportive of all the wackadoodle ideas you have right and they're just <laughs> like let's go with this we're on a bus and we're unicorns and we're a god you know what I mean and I just think the, yeah it makes me hearing you two talk about it makes me want to take another improv class because I did it when I first moved to Vancouver and I loved it because there was that sort of that spaciousness. It allowed for for this free exchange of ideas and, and it can be so much fun and so delightful and there's a lot of laughter, you know? Mm-hmm. And you discover things you didn't know about how your mind works too. Um, yeah, it's powerful stuff. Um, and, and I think that's the reason why I like counseling and psychotherapy so much, mm-hmm. right? Because when, when someone comes, because in a way it's a sort of an improv thing, right? Like people come in, I don't have a particular goal in mind. People are working towards things and I'm always, you know, happy to help people to work towards things. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, people don't show up in my office and I say to them, you know, after eight sessions, you're, you're going to be all better. <laughs> and then I have to work towards that. If I get to the end of eight sessions and it's not going well, then I feel like a complete failure. But as it is, I just show up in as available way as I as I uh, as I can be as present as as interested I bring my curiosity um, and and so at the end of a session right like 
of course, I, I, I would like people to feel, you know, as well as possible at the end of sessions. Some sessions are incredibly difficult and people go out like with a, a lot of balled up Kleenex in their hand. And mm-hmm. if for me, like that was not, that was not like, quote unquote, a kind of a success, I don't think in these terms, but if after every session I had to reflect on like, did I do good? Did I, did I achieve my goal? Then I would walk around like brokenhearted all day long and just feeling like, a, like an absolute failure. Mm. Um, I feel like this is a good segue for you to talk a little bit more about what existential therapy is and like how it's different from CBT or some of the other kind of approaches that are out there, because a lot of people haven't heard of it. Yeah. So, so again, you know, uh, and as with everything ADHD, you know, like it's always ass backwards in, in a particular kind of way. So, you know, like I have always been drawn to, to a certain, certain, um, traditions in philosophy going back to my early academic career. And so the existentialists, you know, we, we typically think of as like Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky and Nietzsche and Heidegger and Sartre and de Beauvoir and then I guess Merleau-Ponty. The funny thing is the only one of those who ever referred to him or herself as an existentialist was, was Sartre. All the rest of them sort of had this, this name sort of thrust upon them. It doesn't matter. They all, they all sort of speak a similar language and are interested in similar things. And so you know, existentialism is is interested at at its base with with life, right? With life and and with death, right? Like death is always um, it, it is always part and parcel of any sort of existential discussion. But then it also speaks to things like uh, feeling responsibility, um, decision making, um, uh, feelings of. Um, uh, aloneness and solitude, like these are some of the themes that sort of show up in um, in, in existentialism. And so um, existential psychotherapy sort of comes out of, of those traditions. And um, when I went in, you know, as a, as a guy in my mid-40s going back into it, I was just immediately drawn to it, right? Like it, it just seemed the most interesting. It's, it's, it's what's called a non-manualized therapy. So there are some therapies, um, CBT and DBT and even things like EFT and some of, some of the sort of quote unquote newer therapies that there is a, like a very particular kind of cadence to them, right? Like you do a particular thing at the end of session two and session four, and there's like these very particular kind of, uh, exercises that you take home with you. So in existential psychotherapy, you know, it's, it's, it's much less structured and, and ultimately we're, we're, I'm interested in, um, those, those same like kind of critically existential themes around, around life and death. How, how do we live our lives? Um, you know, and, and questions of efficiency and waste and justice and, and all the rest of these things sort of show up. And so I didn't plan on this, right? Like I got into existential psychotherapy because it just kind of fit with how I saw the world. And it turns out that there's, I think that there's a very close relationship between ADHD and existentialism because in, in similar ways that we were talking earlier and time as well is like a, a kind of a critical theme. As we were talking before, you know, how we are um, particularly... Um, 
what like attentive or, or, or mindful of time sometimes in like a burdensome or difficult way, right? Like, so, um, you know, my contention is that people with ADHD are also sort of more in touch, this is going to sound a bit dramatic, but are more in touch with our deaths, with, you know, with illness, with, you know, mm-hmm. with, with dark, sort of futures than, than the sort of neurotypical population. And so, I mean, I would even go so far, uh, there's no way of proving this, although I, I, I hope to write something about it, that, that, you know, I mean, it seems clear to me that, that Kierkegaard had ADHD. It seems clear to me that Dostoevsky had ADHD. When you look at the themes, when you look at the things that, that like preoccupy the, the, the whole of their careers, it sort of fits with this stuff. And so again, right? Like, so I got into existential psychotherapy because it fit with the guy who I was. And then as I started talking more and more um, to people about their ADHD, you know, these same themes sort of started to crop up. These themes around like the difficulty around decision-making, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you, if you uh, talked a lot on, on the show about this, but yeah. And, and so I got into all this like super interesting kind of imagery work. I, I remember the, the, this woman that I, that I really, that helped me to, to see this so clearly, we spent an entire hour about discussing how difficult it was for her to buy a pair of jeans. Mm. And, and so I, I just, you know, I, I was interested. I was like, okay, well, l- l- let's talk about this. And what it came down to was this idea that like, you know, each and every decision is a kind of fork in the road for us and that we will ultimately look back on that fork and judge it like well or poorly. And so we we enter into all our decisions with this kind of trepidation, with this kind of fearfulness that a future version of me will look back at the person I am now making these decisions and point and say, you fucking jerk. <laughs> you, you, you put me, you, 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 you fucked me, right? Like you're the one who, who made this decision that put me in this bad kind of situation. And so I spent a lot of time talking about the ways that we relate to ourselves like in the past, but then then also in the future. Because if we build up the sense of ourselves, right? Like when we are, when we need to make a decision, we often make poor decisions. And so you accrue enough of that experience and all of a sudden you start thinking about future uh, decisions or decisions that will have an impact on, on your future self. And what a lot of people do is they just they kind of tap out, right? Like just say, well, what if I didn't make any decision at all? And and it, it, get, it gets to this idea that uh, this is a, a phrase that a, a client offered in session just recently. He used the phrase grief prevention, Right. Oh, wow. and, and, and that just and, and that just struck me as like su- such a like an important thing. Right. That that so much of what we do, it's not that we're right. This. So, again, it's not about inattention. It's not difficulty sitting down. It's like, yeah, I know that those are problems, but I'm interested to know, like, what drives that kind of stuff? The behaviors are sort of like we see the behaviors and they're obvious. But for me, like some of these ideas like grief prevention, you know, the reason that I'm basically refusing to make this decision or I say I'm incapable of, but I'm just I I can't do it because to do it means to put a future version of myself into some kind of peril. And so what I do is I just put my hands up and say, like, I'm not going to do it at all. 
it's your timing is impeccable here, Hart, because literally in the call, like before you logged onto the call, this is exactly what Robbie and I were talking about is about the difficulty in, in doing certain tasks. And, 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 you know, it's be it emails that, that take literally five minutes, but those are the things that I will put off. Uh, if there is any, the slightest remote chance of me getting my feelings hurt as a result of sending that email, or even worse, God forbid, me hurting someone else's feelings as a result of a decision that I've made. And so, again, another thing that I've joked about on, on the show before in conjunction with the consequences thing that I was just talking about is that like, you know, uh, you, you could just kind of ignore most things in your life and uh, uh, 50% of the time it'll go away entirely <laughs> and the other 50, it'll blow up completely in your face. Uh, but it's a, uh, it's a pretty, that's kind of how I've lived my life to date. And I'm maybe trying to get a little bit better about that, but very, mm. very interesting. Now, or <laughs> the decision is made for you and in a way that yes. doesn't sit well with you. And then that's happened to me a lot in my life too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do want to just kind of take a note about time here. Cause I know we had booked an hour. We're at an hour now. Uh, do you have another 15 minutes hard or do you have uh, other? Absolutely. Okay. Just wanted to check in and uh, respect your time there. But this is just such a juicy conversation. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate the way that you're that you're unpacking so much of this and the decision-making. Oh, yeah, and we've talked a little bit, and I, I'd love to hear some more, and I'm sure our listeners would too, about the grief that goes with the decisions that you make or don't make and the way that life has gone. And we've talked a lot about grief, especially early on in the podcast, about a late-life diagnosis about all the different forks that could have been explored, all the different things that could have happened that didn't happen because undiagnosed ADHD, for fuck's sake, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you could talk a bit about how grief um, in the decision-making and just in how we're kind of conducting our lives, how that how that lands for you and what your thoughts are there. Yeah, so so two pieces. The, the, the second one first, which is around the sort of the more like the meta grieving that that happens when you know like you show up as a 52 year old guy and all of a sudden you you know you take your medication one day and you're like oh Jesus Christ you know <laughs> like where has this been all my life and and so for a lot of people right there can be like incredibly difficult feelings around parents around teachers around doctors right? like I, I I know this one this one client who um, She's a woman in her early 50s. She was talking to her mom recently, and and her mom was like, oh, yeah, like when you were five, there was this doctor. Ah, he wanted to put you on this thing. What, what was it called? Ritalin or something like that? And she said, Ritalin? And her mom was like, oh, yeah, 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 Ritalin. So this woman who didn't get her diagnosis for another 45 years, there was a fork in the road that her mother was in charge of. Uh, when she was five years old, that could have had like a profound impact on the on the whole of her life. And so there can be some really difficult feelings um, and relationships with parents. There's a whole generational thing, right? Like there's certain, you know, when I was a kid, I was born in the late 60s. No one knew, you know, at that time, ADHD was still called minimal brain disorder or dysfunction or something oh. like that. Like that was his original name. Um and, you know, uh, there, there was no pharmaceutical support. I mean, Ritalin existed, but it was not, you know, no. So there, there does need to be, for, for most of us, I have seen some people who have just gotten their diagnosis at like a later age and been like, 
Okay, uh, uh, fuck that. What came before? Now we're going into the future. But but for the most, you know, most of us have to have like these difficult conversations with our parents and thinking through, you know failed relationships and, and difficult experiences at jobs and, and just the feeling of like being a fuck up for so much of your life. And mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, and so for me, like that's always part of the kind of the therapeutic process to make sure. And, and I think, again, like that, that feel that a sense of grief prevention, I think so much of the way that we are in the world is to sort of keep grief at arm's length. The problem being, of course, is that it just remains there kind of accruing things to grieve. And, you know, the, and then when we're sort of forced to look at that, that, that can be incredibly dysregulating and difficult. Um, to go back to the sort of more micro decision-making thing, the you know I, I go back to the, the, these discussions I had with clients. This is a couple years ago, and I used to I don't do it so much anymore, but I used to do this sort of um, this imagery. Uh, what do I want to call it? It was just a kind of like an imagery exercise to to get people's. Um, uh, feedback, and so I would present a kind of um, a kind of a landscape in which a person was in a clearing, and then there were a number of paths that would sort of go off from the clearing, and each of those paths represented um, a decision, right? Like, and so. I would talk about okay, you're you're in this, you know, what is it? What is it like to go down one of these paths? And so then I would get like a, a, this is a sort of an aggregated description that I got um, from from a variety of people, but you know people would say you know like seeing all the paths in front of me like my first reaction is just to like lie down mm -hmm. right and not and not go not traverse any of those paths so you know that that's one thing right that's just like I put my hands out I'm I'm not uh, I'm not participating in any of this, but then as as people would you know kind of in the in this imagery exercise walk down these paths what they would say is that they could see all the other paths that were around them sort of the the road literally the roads not taken the decisions not made mm -hmm. and that there would that they would feel this kind of overwhelming kind of anticipatory regret or sadness or like right like it was it was a kind of like possibility that was was passing them by and then one client just like doubled down on all of it and said as i walk down this one path all the other paths in a sense kind of like follow me and in a sense like haunt me mm. right like they and so it's not even like uh, e even when you make a decision it's almost like all the other possibilities are kind of chirping in your ear about what could have been, mm. right? So, and then even when we make affirmative decisions, it's, and, and we can feel okay about it, even still, right? Like there's this kind of nagging feeling that we, that we did it wrong, that we weren't efficient about it, that there were better outcomes, that there were, that there were possibilities that now are closed to us forever. And that is true, right? Like, and, and, and that is why I think like grief and, and mourning are such important kind of themes for people with ADHD and um, we we have to we have to mourn the possibilities that that we haven't um, we, we have to mourn the paths that we didn't go down because to to forestall that warning means to allow them to sort of tail us forever right and and I just know so many people who walk around with this feeling of 
of regret just like permeating their, you know, even, even people who are like obviously like doing well or successful by certain metrics, right? There's still this kind of feeling, yeah, but what if I had done it this different kind of way? Like, could it have been better? Yeah, I certainly uh, uh, find myself, you know, not to be again, not to be too dramatic, but like consumed with regret on some days, like and and you know about things that things that you know, yeah, just just decisions that that could have gone a different way, and like yeah, wondering wondering what that could have been like, or yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it is, and and that's the and that's the sort of the 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 power and the process of mourning, because to mourn something means to to affirmatively recognize that it it is something that's no longer available to you right and to to mourn the loss of possibility right like we're we're all we all know what it means to mourn the loss of a, of a person that's you know that's codified and, and structured in our in our societies in various ways but each and every day when we make a decision we necessarily make kind of like infinite minus one decisions and and that means that there's like this whole all these possibilities ways that we could be you know are not going to be explored and and I think for people with ADHD you know that that we need to consciously self-consciously say to ourselves like when we do this it means that we're not doing these other things that we also might want to do. And then, you know, our reaction is like, ah, well, it's fine, you know, like, well. but it's important to take a breath and say, um, actually, that's hard, right? Like that we've, we, we have lost something. There are possibilities that are, there are futures that are no longer available to us and never will be. Yes. And and I think for people with ADHD, like that there's something about that that is so sad or dysregulating or profound. And But I think that when we're more self-conscious about it, we can at least be attentive to it. Yes, to be attentive to it and not um, to be consumed by it, like what Jordan was saying. Um, and people have said that to me throughout my life, like, why do you get so consumed by that, you know, whatever it is that you're being consumed by, whether it's regret or grief, you know, like I grieved a job that was like such a short period of my life for much longer than I think a normal or sorry, neurotypical person may have done. Um, but it also opened up all these other pathways for me, right? That I'm on this kind of learning and discovering, which I'm relishing a lot of. But that mourning piece, I think, because there is this strange stigma around mourning, because it's generally associated with, yeah, someone you you care about passing away and they're no longer in your life. But there's that mourning, I think it's called ambient mourning, where you're mourning things that um, are more abstract. And that's, it's difficult to quantify. It's not like you can just like go away for two days and come back and ta-da, I'm ready to be productive again. Like it's a different kind of mourning to say, I know that at this point in my life, it's unlikely that I will um, ever become an athlete or ever become, you know, like I think we have talked about this before. There's a morning of the possibilities that in your 20s and 30s could still very much be alive, but in my 50s, not so much, right? Um, because I do recognize, unless I live to be 106, that there's more life behind me than, than in front of me. Um, and I think it's okay to kind of mourn that a little bit without be, being consumed by it, but to say that, okay, well, you know, shitty that this didn't happen for me in my life. But, you know, like working in film, for example, like I moved to Vancouver almost almost 10 years ago because I wanted to direct movies. That was my jam, right? And then I got into it and I was like, 
oh boy, this industry is filled with real assholes. No, thank you. And I don't want to work 16 hours a day. And I don't want to deal with all the rejection at the film festivals and all that shite. I'm, I'm good. Like maybe I'll make other short films or documentaries in, in another way, but not that way. Right. So there was a grieving that had to go along with that. Um, yeah. And it's so important to, to recognize that it needs to happen. Like, like, or they do haunt us, right? These things will follow us around until we recognize them and say, this really hurts. Like this hurts me in my core that this isn't going to happen. But maybe once I recognize that feeling, and that's what's happened for me in the last two years, recognize a feeling of like despair kind of, and then moving through it instead of uh, trying to push it off to the side with, you know, positive thinking or whatever. Yeah. Juicy. Hard. So this this might sound like a weird question, but like, you know, I, I, I don't I don't know that I'm particularly good at mourning and grieving things. Uh, I mostly would just rather push that stuff out because I don't want to deal with the feelings. And so so I guess what what does mourning uh, an, an, an untaken life path look like? What does what does the process of, of grieving out uh, a, a dead possibility look like, uh, you know, from your perspective, Hart? I, I don't think that there's like a, a particular way that you need to do it. You know, like I, I come from a, I'm a non-religious person. So the, the ways in which, you know, one of the things that's kind of nice about religion is that they have very particular ways of celebrating, you know, births and mourning deaths and these sorts of things. And I think people really like love that structure. Um, of course, as a person with ADHD, like the idea of joining into a group and like, you know, doing the thing that people tell me to do is sort of anathema to me. So, you know, of course you have to make up each, each and everything, but I, but I think that's sort of the task, right? So, um, maybe Robbie has spoken about this, but you know, I have this little walking group on, on Monday mornings that, that Robbie has attended and I call it. Monday mornings, right? M O U R, right? And and so the 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 kind of the the premise was um, talking to people. You know, I think um, I often note that weekends and vacations are are difficult times for people with ADHD um, because there's you know there's less structure, there's less ex- you know you get a little bit lost. And so I see people coming out of their weekends into their week into their Monday morning, kind of being like a bit upside down or whatever the case may be. And so what I wanted to do is sort of organize this this group on Monday morning that we would sort of do this anticipatory morning, right? We would say, like part of the the project was to say, okay, we're gonna look at our week. Um, you know, here are the things that we're going to do. Okay, we have meetings and we have work and we have dates, whatever the case may be. And as a result of having this kind of structure, this kind of schedule for the week coming, here are all the things that we're not going to get to do. You know, I'm not going to get to my improv class this week. I'm not going to, you know, I normally go and 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 play music with uh, with some guys on Wednesday night, but I'm doing this other thing. Right. So so it's the recognition at the very beginning of the week that we. We are, you know, we are limited in our capacity and that because we have made these choices and some we have made and some have been sort of like thrust upon us, but nonetheless, to to self-consciously at the beginning of the week say, okay, here are the things that I I like to do or I want to do um, and I'm not going to get to do them this week. And, and, to be, be, and to self-consciously say like, that's shit, right? Like your morning could look like, God damn it, 
fuck, you know, I'm not going to get to do this thing this week that I really want to do. Or it could be, it could be much more structured. It could be something more physical. It could be something you could light a candle, right? Like you could light a candle at the beginning of the week and say like, this candle is to commemorate all the things that I, you know, all the loss that I'm going to suffer in, in the, in the week that comes. And, and the only reason to be self-conscious of it is to, because the, the corollary is that we don't pay any attention to it. And then we get to Wednesday night and uh, we, we realize, God damn it, like I really want to go play with these guys, but I, I have this other thing. And now I'm at war with myself because I'm so angry that I made this other appointment mm-hmm. and I feel like I've let these other guys down. And now I'm, you know, now you may um, be feeling like a deeper sense of some version of RSD or some, you know, and, and now you're down that road. So like these, these are not perfect strategies, but I think they're self-conscious ways of, of seeing like, is there a way that we can kind of open up a bit of a clearing in our week so that we don't feel like actually, because in the absence of doing it, probably what we're going to do is see if like we can jam it in all on the same night. <laughs> oh, well, I'll, you know, like I'll definitely be able to get to this thing and, and, and then I'll leave exactly on time because everything like ends precisely when it's supposed <laughs> to end and definitely the bus won't be late and I, and I'll get to my other thing. But then that, none of that stuff happens because, you know, things are a little bit more complex. And so to be able to get out in front of it a little bit and say like, man, I am bummed or sad or disappointed or whatever the feeling is that I can't do both. But the recognition that I can't do both means that I can enter into my week with, with, uh, in the absence of the expectation that secretly I'm going to figure out a way of, of making it all fit together. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, uh, g- getting out in front of that instead of um, letting it creep up on you, I guess. That's a really good way to think about it. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm so glad you, that you uh, shared a bit about that because I just think it's such a... I'd not heard of anyone else approaching it that way of kind of getting a little bit... Yeah, getting in front of it and saying, okay, so this this does need to be acknowledged and I do need to feel these feelings because... And I've talked about this in the podcast before. I'll just say yes to every fucking thing in the world because I get excited and I throw future Robbie under the bus because she does not have time and capacity to go to six events on a Tuesday, right? Even if it is on Zoom, no thank you. Like It's overwhelming, right? Um, so yeah, that's amazing heart. And I know we're kind of coming up on time. I definitely need a bio break. So um, do you have anything that you wanted to kind of share in closing uh, before we wrap up? You know, we'll put your website and whatnot in the show notes, but just anything particular you wanted to, uh, to wrap us with? Oh boy, you know, I have uh, 47 things that are like kind of pinging around my head, <laughs> mm. but I feel like that each, each and every one would be like another path to walk down. I just want to say, you know, thank you for, for inviting me on the show and, and um, you know, giving me an opportunity to talk a little bit about, about the way that I approach these things. I, I think it's a little different than, than a lot of the, the, the kind of the, the ways that people think about ADHD. Mm-hmm. I mean, we didn't even talk about how frustrated, we talked a little bit about how I think that the name is poor and, and I guess is, is someone tried to like use vast now Mm. as like the, the new ADHD term. I think that's dog shit as well, (laughs) you know? Um, so, you know, um, but I am, this is part of my own, uh, ADHD journey is I, I'm, I'm just getting back into writing again. And, um, and so I've, um, 
uh, both Shane and I, or Shane is my my partner here, we're, we're both doing some writing. And so if people ever want to go to the site, you know, like I, I have like a, an ADHD blog that I'm um, that I'm just starting and I'm going to continue to explore all these sorts of ideas in in writing as I go forward. And what is that site? Uh, Nightingale Counseling. Nightingalecounseling.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. That's yeah. so great. And I, I feel like we can definitely have like a sequel because like, I know there's so many more things that we could talk about. We can have you on at another date when, you know, when things are progressing, because I know you mentioned another project that you're working on too. So um, yeah, I'm so thrilled that you took the time with us today. Thank you so much, Hart. This was really great. My mind is just like, and that's a great way to start the week. It was a really great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed Holy Shit, I Have ADHD, Subscribing to and reviewing it on your podcast platform of choice helps more neurodivergent folks find us, as does following and promoting the show on social media. A full list of platforms is on our Anchor page at anchor.fm forward slash holy shit, I have ADHD. While you're there, why not leave us a voicemail? You can also share your thoughts on this episode or your own ADHD experiences with us at, you guessed it, holy shit, I have ADHD at gmail.com or via our social media pages in the episode notes. Bye for now, and hyper-focus on the positive. <laughs>